Right, David Bosch, he'll bring us to sanity. He's a bit of my hero, David Bosch. I came to him late in life, an African theologian and a great scholar. Tragically, he was killed in a road incident in his native South Africa. So we've not really got him to be able to probe and question about his insights. But he writes a rather thick book. And his case is very straightforward because in that book, he tracks how our understanding and our practice of mission has changed from the very early disciples through the ages. Which, of course, gives us the insight that we are allowed to do something for the first time. Nowhere will we find it written, thou shalt not do something for the first time. So mission is open to us. It's open to our creativity and our imagination. But one of the other things he did was to introduce the term holistic mission. Now that was a great release for me because I am a kid who comes from the Bootle Bible Belt. Um, you didn't realize that England had its own Bible Belt. Well, you'll find it in Bootle. We take our faith very seriously and we want others to share it. And I will concite the times when I, like the very busy Jehovah's Witnesses, have confronted people to say, do you know the Lord? Now, because I was a passionate evangelist, but happened to find myself in the realm of um, social responsibility, social action, I was kind of separated off from my roots. Because in social action, what you say is that by demonstrating the compassion of God, the kindness and concern of God, and of course we are the only hands that God has on this earth, then people's heart will slowly melt and they then too will find the relevance and significance of Jesus. So there were almost like two silos. And those who would do the social action and those who would do the preaching and the buttonholing and preaching the gospel full frontal. And what David Bosch says, can I have the next slide please, is that, do you know what? It all holds together. That when we do our social action, we will find that through the grace of God, people will hear the story of salvation. And that it's not you do one thing and then something else happens. It's like a great dance a great flow of almost imperceptible and unanticipated grace. But he says, he says, do you know what? In the West, that's us, in the West, we do have a very peculiar way of reading the Gospels. He says, you've had the Gospels for a thousand years, but we've been encouraged 
to read the Gospels as if they're just moving to a great crescendo. And what matters in our Gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus and the salvation it brings. And some of the songs we've sung this morning have also emphasized what matters is Jesus' death and resurrection. But what Bosch says, that if you're going to do holistic mission, you're going to take the life of Jesus as seriously as his death and resurrection. Let me put my glasses on, because I found time to read. These are, this magazine is in your rooms, and it's excellent. It's Premier Radio's Christianity. I think it's a new edition. And so I only get as far as the editorial, and I find this illustration of the way in which we tend to read our Gospels. Jesus came to fix the brokenness by becoming broken himself for us. And we all go, amen to that. But Jesus came to save us, not just dying for us and rising again. Jesus also saves us by showing us how to live. And it's that aspect that we're going to focus on this weekend. And there's another reason why that's such an important focus, is that in our very, well, in our society, which has such a dodgy religious ear, it's a little bit of a big call to say to people, Jesus died for your sins. Partly because they don't know how that would work, and partly because we're in a world that doesn't know what sin is anyway. So it may just be that the gospel begins to be understood by people when we start to speak of how Jesus lived his life. Jesus the man. And that, of course, is why I have encouraged you to read the gospels, to see the way in which Jesus lived, to compensate that inclination that we have in the West to focus on Jesus' death and resurrection. Resurrection. Can I have the next one, please? Discipleship is the following of Jesus. Not just believing in Jesus, trying to pick up an aspect of the way in which he lived his life and make it our own. And one of the first challenges, and it would be a big challenge for a church such as your own, because you're a busy, well-organized church. And that means that the first expression of discipleship may well be doing jobs in church. And just a little thought that maybe discipleship involves something a little bit more venturesome than doing jobs in church. I'm sorry, church warden. Everybody will still do jobs in church, okay? <laughs> um, but maybe we need to think a little bit more significantly. And I want to suggest that could I, should I, is the beginning of that debate, that internal conversation that we have um, inside ourselves, in our prayers. Could I, should I? Um, 
Could we? Should we? And those, I think, at the beginning of Venturesome Love. And I have an illustration. Calendar Girls. Now, who knows the story of Calendar Girls? Right, now you better tell that story to those who don't know the story of Calendar Girls. So we begin with... How does the film begin? It's a real-life story. How does it begin? John, the husband, gets sick, and it's terminal. First scene. Second scene. No? Nope. There's cheating with the cake and the buns, but that comes a bit later. What happens is that they're sitting in the hospital supporting their, their friend whose husband's dying. And they're sitting on a settee and the springs have gone. Yep, that's the next stage. And one of them says, do you know what? When we get through this, we'll do a bit of a fundraiser to get them a decent settee. That little could I, should I? Yes, of course we can do that. The next scene is that one of them has the bright idea that they're going to do a North Yorkshire version of a Pirelli calendar. And we see these more mature women um, depicting themselves, I think it shows, very decent, well, unclothed, but decently protected with buns um, or with flowers. Now, during that film, there are two little conversations that keep going. Could I? Could we? Should we? And then it was followed by, I will if you will. Those little elements are so critical for venturesome love. Because if we're going to take a risk in what we do, we need to make sure that we've tested out <laughs> Is it too wild and wacky? Um, or will it actually, well, lead to a whole host, dare I say, of virtues? I think they raised over four million pounds. And the number of um, similar calendars that are produced every year are now countless. But I want to share with you um, a real story, next slide please, which involved that similar dynamic of could I should I? Who knows the craze with a C? Oh, look. <laughs> I know it's very relevant to you. Don't you have an interesting pub that belongs to the craze with a K? Well, this is the craze, those little villages that are along the Thames. I think the St. Mary's Cray, Foots Cray. Yeah, those craze. Well, I was with the Mother's Union there. I was going to do a talk, did my best, but they weren't really interested in anything I could offer because seven of their members had just come back from Zimbabwe. What had happened about six months before was that they had had a visit from Mother's Union workers from Zimbabwe, and those workers had told them how the fertility of the land had been lost. And that meant that many of the villagers had lost 
cash crops. They had nothing to take to market. And that meant, of course, that they were so much poorer, so much more vulnerable, um, because there was no, nothing to trade, nothing to get money for the kids to go to school. In their talk, they say how one of the things that the Mother's Union was doing was that they were taking hand sewing machines into the villages. And that meant that the women could make garments and have something now to sell at market. Tea break comes, and of the women who were gathered at the Mother's Union meeting, there were seven of them who have a hand sewing machine. Can I just have a little test? How many hand sewing machines have we got in our lots? One, two, three, four, five. Well, you listen well. So they say, oh, I've got a hand sewing machine. I wonder whether if we got them, if they just stayed here for half an hour, we could go and get them and they could take them back to Zimbabwe. And of course, the workers said, well, we couldn't really, we couldn't manage them because we're on tour and whatever. So the women of the craze go back and they say, well, I know, if we do some fundraising, we'll get some money and we'll do up our hand sewing machines and we'll then get them shipped out to you. Now, that's what's called the cash nexus. And that's what we in the West always do. Oh, we've got a problem. Get some money and the money will sort it. If only it was that simple. And the workers from Zimbabwe said, well, you could do that. But we're not altogether confident that we would be able to get those sewing machines from the custom sheds. If you want to get your Singer sewing machine into the village, probably the best thing to do would be for you to bring it. Immediately, could I, should I, could we, should we? And of course, they, they went and decided that they should. Now, I'm going to tell you this story mostly as it happened, but it might also be a little bit added on, but God doesn't mind. Um, but what I want to, as I tell the story of what happened, I want you to look for a cascade of positives, a whole flow of virtue. Because as you think about the way in which Jesus lived his life, and the possibility that we should find a favorite, that simply by pursuing that favorite, by following it, by allowing it to inform our prayers, we may well be party to a great cascade of grace. In fact, I think we might actually enter a portal, an entrance into a very real economy an economy of abundance, which is as real as the economy of scarcity, which we know only too well. So, the daughter of the women, the daughters of the women who were going to Zimbabwe were absolutely furious. 
What a hair-brained, madcap idea their mother and her mates have got into. Mother, you've had a slip disc. I know I've had a slip disc. Do you know that was 17 years ago? And have you heard me complain about me back since? Then, of course, daughter keeps bending the ear of her husband, and her husband starts telling his mates in work about the madcap mother-in-law. And one of the fellas in the office says, does your mother-in-law know that she can't get travel insurance to go to Zimbabwe? Tells his wife, his wife phones, mother, do you know you can't get travel insurance? Oh, oh, yes, yes, um, we've sorted that all out with the Mother's Union. Um, we are covered. One of the things that in our anxious, hyper-anxious world that we need to do is to have the courage to name those anxieties and, in a sense, measure ourselves up against them. Those women from the craze they knew that uh, it's a little bit awkward when you're carrying a single sewing machine. They're heavy things. We must have one of our hands free, just in case we take a tumble. We'll have to have rucksacks. Oh, hey, I think I'd better get myself in training. And they used to walk around the house for 40 minutes every day in order to practice right-angled turns carrying their Singer sewing machine. <laughs> Interestingly, whilst their daughters were, mother, you can't do that, the grandchildren were intrigued. And I have a hunch that that courage in rising above all the possible hazards that they might encounter would actually influence the way in which their grandchildren would go on to live their lives. That because of that courage, that commitment of a grandmother, that their grandchildren would go on to err on the side of courage and compassion likewise. The other thing is, of course, it gives a story-rich life. I mentioned that I was going to strut my stuff, and I'm always pretty good at doing that, you know, very entertaining, but actually they had a better story. And interestingly, the local paper had discovered what an interesting story it was. Of course, it was so visual. It was as good as Calendar Girls, because there was the picture of them going off in the minivan to take them to Heathrow. And then, of course, there was the stories that they then had um, as they came back from Zimbabwe, having made friends and having seen the situation, a contested view of how things are in Zimbabwe, having their own story. What we know in terms of our mission is that what we want most now is not stuff from Ikea, but a story to tell. And that our mission needs to give people a story-rich life. Um, you can decide from your, for yourself 
whether this particular venture this weekend will be story rich enough. That is not a challenge. And then the other thing, and this is where I kind of make it up. They were in Zimbabwe, in the bush, for a fortnight. Now I know that as sure, as sure as God made little green apples, at some point, they would wish that they were dead because of what was going on within their metabolism. I think it might be dysentery. And of course, they'll have done their thinking that if you're starting to have diarrhea, and you've got to keep drinking the water, bottled water. But it comes in a big bowser and goes into bottles. Do you know, I'm not sure whether the water's helping or making it worse. That whole anxiety starts to. And then news comes that the, the vans that are coming to take them back to Harare are coming this afternoon and not tomorrow. God help me. God help me. You see, whilst ever we live in a playpen, that cry, God help me, becomes something infrequent. It is, in fact, an evolutionary cul-de-sac to live as we do in these playpens, where we think it's an offense, an offense to be too hot, too cold, to be in a draft. A species only flourishes to the extent that it rubs up against the raw and abrasive aspects of life. Sometimes we have to do that by proxy or by invitation because of the playpen living that we have created for ourselves. But that saying yes to something venturesome becomes a thin place that's to use an expression by George MacLeod, the chap who refounded the Iona community, the Abbey at Iona. Because he used to say that Iona was so mysterious, that God was so close that it felt there was only a tissue that separated us from an awareness of God. And I imagine that for those seven women, at some point they've said, God help me. And you know he did. Somehow the resilience was there. Um, next slide, please. So that little trip to Zimbabwe, it informs decisions throughout generations. It also enables us to see the face of the other. It's an insight from a French philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas. Sometimes when we dare to move out, and we move out to situations where people know deeply about struggle, long-term struggle, by being alongside in that situation, there is a disclosure moment, a way of seeing which rises above and pushes away prejudice. 
And I reckoned it mattered in Zimbabwe that these seven women were kind of ordinary. They weren't part of DFID. They weren't part of some great movement. They were just ordinary women who thought, you know what? It matters to me what happens in this distant place. Because I was born in the Bootle Bible Belt and was shaped by the Bootle Bible Belt, I can't help but think, how does David Bosch think that people are going to discover Jesus and the salvation he brings by this sort of invitation? Well, I think as a church, you have to decide whether the people of Whitby and Seasalter have an urge to be a more moral self. Just as I have an urge to be a slimmer self, a fitter self, stop laughing. Um, <laughs> do we also have an urge to be a more moral self? And it may just be that that is something that you can start to offer the people of Whitstable. And did I say Whitby before? Whitstable, and no, I wondered, I thought, Ooh, where, are they? <laughs> where did they think I am? <laughs> Do people have this urge, even in Whitstable, to be a more moral self? And then, of course, once we start to be venturesome, we start to discover our need of God. Um, we start to get a little glimpse, actually, of Sin. Can I have the next one, please? Oh, that's not what I expected, but I will leave it. Yes, you can read that at your leisure. A much underestimated force in the world is the power of a radicalized older woman. And the reason why I say that is because one of the skills, the attributes of an older woman is to be able to identify all the possible hitches, all the hazards. So it's not a kind of quick leaping into, oh, look at this adventure. It's, mm, this could happen, mm, this could happen. It's all right, I'm up to that, I'm up for it. So our attitude to hazards um, is not the same in our life, lifespan. So when an older woman says, yep, I'm up for it, then it's a really interesting point of discernment. Now all the fellas are saying, what about me? Um, older men, older men, the calling of older men is to be peacemakers. It's actually to say to the young chaps for whom adventure seems second nature, hold it lad. And so when your church, as it will, because God did make those little green apples, when your church starts to be into disputes and tetchy, it will be the older men who say, calm, wait, no, no, no. The point of discernment about whether to go to battle belongs to the older man. Um, and yet we often forget that. So as we age, our styles and our aptitudes differ. Next one, please. Oh, right, well, that's all that then. Um, 
I wanted to say about sin. That's why, you see, look, it doesn't do sin. <laughs> There's a reading, actually, if you, add, there is a reading, would you do it, Lisa? Thank you. It's, now before Lisa reads this, um, I mentioned it's about sin. Because when we encounter struggle, what's going on in Zimbabwe, what's going on with homeless people in Streatham, we start to realize that somehow we are not up to the task, that we fall short. And that's really just a kind of current way of describing that three-letter word, sin. Off you go, thank you. I suspect I started to volunteer to serve breakfast to the homeless as a way of being a more faithful disciple. I did not volunteer to have my heart broken. However, at the basement door, I have come not to a greater confidence in my own good works, but to a deeper awareness of my personal sins and my complicity in sinful systems, as well as to greater dependence on the grace of Jesus Christ. In many ways, the basement door is a joyful place, a place of handshakes and conversation and fellowship. However, the door also brings with it times of conflict and almost always a sense of failure and a glimpse of the cross. The person working the door is the one who has to say, no, you can't come in yet. There's no room at the tables. No, you're too late. We're not serving breakfast anymore. Next one. What a revelation this has been. I had always assumed that discipleship followed the confession of sin and the acceptance of forgiveness. The faltering hospitality offered via the basement door has taught me that the process is actually reversed. We do, not, we do not fully know the depth of our sin and the reality of God's grace until we follow the way of Jesus. Thank you so much. That is actually on your sheets. That's why it's not up there. So it's... Um um, oh, it is up there. <laughs> I kind of want to invite you in a convenient grouping. And there's a fabulous echo in this room. So for those who are using hearing assistance, I'm sure they'd be grateful if we kept our tone fairly low. Um, there's two questions. I don't know whether they're, they're, they're certainly on your sheets. Does your involvement at St. Alphage, have I got that right? Yeah. I'm in the right church, even if I'm in the wrong town. Does your involvement in church challenge you to express venturesome love? Could there, should there be more opportunities? Um, so around that, could I, should I? I know if I was to answer this for St. Leonard Streatham, where I go, um, what do you know? <laughs> you know, could I, should I be a server and walk very neatly carrying a candle? It's kind of not discipleship. So off you go with that discussion. And there might be a bit of time before our act of remembrance to um, speak on that. Thank you. Good. So if we try to turn okay. around groups of five, six, maybe a little bit more. Now, this really is my teaching practice. Shh. 
Thank you. Have people got any things that they might like to share? We will kind of get a microphone to you. Any observations? Hi, right. Um, we were talking about that we should consider that it's not just the cliches of the homeless or food banks or helping people overseas, but also where families within the church are struggling mm -hmm. and can easily, quickly sort of drop off yeah. the radar. Um, yeah. And maybe that we as a church need to get ourselves just a bit more attuned to those people and yeah. have some sort of structure where we can be helping right. those as yeah. well because yeah. there's some quite difficult situations yeah. within the church. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, each church, remember Jesus takes context seriously. Um, just looking at you all, you are such a gloriously diverse group of people in different stages of the lifespan. And that, I think, is not to be heard as a kind of inward move, but actually a deepening move. Whereas in some churches, that might be seen as being very defensive. But from what I see here, that would be a, you know, a piece of work worth doing, yeah, or a way of being. Actually, we had a very similar conversation, but we talked more about the wider sort of outside of, in that we are doing work with uh, Lucerne at the moment, and there's a new sort of trying to go into there and create what they see as church. But we talked about also, like there's Mariner's View and that, which is another huge estate near us. And because the perception is it's moneyed, you know, they don't perhaps need right. the help, but actually, as, yeah. as Keith just said, actually, you know, yeah. there are people there in similar situations, yeah. and just because yeah. they've got the big house, yeah. and that doesn't change. And there's a kind of tyranny that can come because once the outside appearance looks as if everything's sorted, the pressure internally to present yourself as everything's sorted is a real tyranny, yeah. um, you know, a real aspect of stress. Whereas for those of us who, <laughs> you know, you know, we're wrecks. There's a certain amount of grace that can flow, but when we pretend that everything is sorted, that pretense can be the very devil. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing just that I would, is that we talked also about being a team ministry. And as I said, when we were worshipping earlier, in my head I was thinking, wouldn't it be lovely if all five churches were here, not just five? Is there a place big enough? Oh, across. The O2. <laughs> <laughs> then we can all tick that box. Oh, yes, yeah. we've sung in the O2. Yeah. But, you know, it is a definite, you know, again, we should help within our own, it's, you know, sort yeah. of... Yes, of so people. are the boundaries that we've created, which are really just in the head rather than in reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks. Any other comments? Yes, along the front there. Uh, the AGK Centre in Whitstable, as we all know, is closing uh, at the end of this month. And a lot of the elderly clients who I was working there did actually say to me, do you know, we haven't got many places to go and have a lunch now. Um, they don't want to go across to Herne Bay, and they don't know how much help they're going to get with things like filling in forms and things like that. And my daughter uh, in her church in Ramsgate, they actually run a, a CAP um, clinic over there for their elderly. And I just thought it would be a real opportunity yeah. to have elderly yeah. people come in yeah. Yeah. because there's, there are lots of people that struggle on a pension and they need yeah. help 
Yeah. And I think that would be a real opportunity. A real possibility. Yeah. In our next session, um, it, there will be an opportunity to focus on specifics. Um, because there is what I call the warrior stance. Now, that's not, um, it actually is something in yoga, but in my sense, it's, um, you know, a warrior is not somebody who is warlike. A warrior is somebody who has the appropriate and necessary prowess to act with speed in a situation. And the, the illustration that you've just given, sorry, I can I see, is it Lynn? Yeah. Um, really is saying, do you know what, we are warriors. We are well placed in order to be able to respond with speed and precision. Um, so it may just be that the aim for you all is to be warrior, not in a warlike sense, but with the prowess to be able to act with pace and generosity should the opportunity occur. Thank you. Um, I was, um, when I was listening, I was jotting down little bits of what you were saying and um, that were sticking out to me. And one of the things I was thinking about is that it's not just about, um, you know, um, struggle, going and seeing um, communities that are struggling or homelessness people that are struggling. And um, it sometimes can be an internal struggle um, and a personal struggle. And so um, I was looking at, you know, a playpen living and stepping outside of what's comfort comfortable. And for me, for um, most of you probably know that um, out of our little boy is 23 months old, but for 15, 14 months of that time, he spent in hospital. And we've had some long spells in hospital mm. away from home. You know, like I've had to live away from home, away from family, my other children, my husband, and my friends. And, um, and in that time, um, I, you know, I had a very sick child and he would, I would be saying those words, which I quote from you, God help me. Mm. Um, and he did. And somehow you realize there's resilience there. And I was able to keep going with that. The warrior mum, that's mm. actually a bit of term that's referred yeah, to a lot in the hospitals. Right, yes. The hospitals yeah. refer to the warrior mums because the nurses say that you come in and you don't really know, you're very overwhelmed. You don't really know how things are meant to work out what your role is and but by the time you leave after five six months they say it's like a different person walking out of those doors because you've become a warrior mum and it's about pace and it's about resilience and for me when I was in um, up in London for a long time and I didn't have my playpen around me which is cell group and um, church services um, at my uh, in my congregation I didn't have my family I didn't have my friends, I didn't have anyone. I just had me in a room, a hospital room, next to a sick child in a cot. Even my husband was away for six days out of seven because he had to stay home to work, to keep the money coming in, to keep home going. So, but, so for me, it was very isolating. And you kind of, then you go, I had to go through the, the journey of um, questioning, well, God, why have you done this to us? What, why did I deserve this? Why do I deserve to have a child that's so unwell? And, and I didn't have my playpen around me to, to kind of encourage me to kind of say, well, this is why, Helen, and, you know, and have you thought about it in this way? And, you know, and God is good and God is great and blah, blah, blah. I didn't have all of that. I just had my own reflective thoughts. 
And um, so that's when I realized that for me personally, things like church and cell, they are very important, but they're like a tool to me, but they don't define my faith. My faith, I had to find from within myself. Yeah. And, um, and that's when I realized that God was there. He did help me and gave me that resilience. And then the other part that you were saying about a story-rich life, not the stuff from Ikea, but a story to tell. And that doesn't come at the beginning. That comes in reflection after the event has happened. Yeah. And after the event has happened, then you reflect over the times which were challenging. And that's when you realize, actually, this is my faith and this is who I am. And I do have the resilience. And that is my story to tell. And so we couldn't throw money at that situation. You can't throw money to make a child better because there's only so much the doctors and nurses can do. The rest is just down to whatever's meant to be will be. And so that's where it's not about money. It's not about the stuff from Ikea, but it's about the story to tell and what you can learn from that story. Can I just say one thing, if I may, from that powerful testimony? Um, the church growth experts say that a church will only grow if people who look see find somebody whose story looks and sounds a bit like theirs. Um, Helen has given us a story of, of struggle um, and utter insecurity, having to fight all the challenges, become a warrior mum, couldn't have put it better. Um, you are blessed with a church which looks like people who will find, you know, life's been tough. Um, but you know what? In this place, there's no hiding that, but gosh, there's a home. Um, so the diversity of your stories is really the gold which you have 